I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors in Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. For this week's episode, I've decided to air an interview in its entirety with a former Navy SEAL. This one was recorded for my other podcast, Burn the Boats, so you'll notice the format is quite different. The spirit of the interview, however, is what you've come to expect from warriors in their own words, an unfiltered, unsanitized perspective on war. I wanted to share this interview with this audience because it is so timely and so important. You'll see why. My guest today is Dan Barkhuff, a former Navy SEAL with multiple combat deployments and an expert in urban warfare. I've asked him to talk to us about what the Russian army is likely to face as invasion turns to occupation. Uh, Dan, I wish we were talking under different circumstances, but welcome. Thanks, Ken. Uh, pleasure to be here. I agreed it would be, be better under different circumstances. What are your impressions right now uh, looking at uh, what is happening on the ground in in Ukraine? Yeah, well, I good question. So I, I would caveat it. Of course, I'm only privy to you know open source stuff. So you know, in the uh, for those listening, when we say open source, we mean you know stuff that's put out in the the press. Uh, you know, there's nothing nothing classified. I don't have any official information. Um, and I would also caveat that I'm by no means an expert in uh, Ukrainian or, or Russian kind of order of battle uh, issues. But I can tell you um, a few things, you know, based on my my experiences in in uh, in urban combat and in war zones that, that I've noticed. So, um, you know, the, the first thing with the, the Russian offensive that, you know, kind of jumps out is. Uh, the difference between kind of, you know, maneuver warfare and, and positional warfare. So <clears throat> when we talk about maneuver warfare, you know, this is kind of uh, a Napoleonic um, ideal where you have, you know, big armies or units in the field that are trying to achieve relative superiority by by maneuvering on one another and, and attacking one another's flanks and, and getting to the rear of your opponent and things like that. Urban combat largely is kind of defined by positional warfare. So um, maintaining, uh, you know, access to your own supply lines, uh, having the ability to um, get resources into the fight and uh, wounded folks and, and expended resources out of the fight and utilizing those supply lines. And then also being being able to maintain your relative advantage over your opponent by uh, by position. So, you know, the on the a term we used to use was uh, green side versus, you know, kind of the black side. The, the green side, when we say that, we talk about, you know, kind of warfare in a land warfare type environment. So you're out in the woods, you're in the jungle, you're on a mountain, that kind of stuff. Uh, think more Afghanistan. Um, and then, you know, when we talk about uh, urban warfare, you know, kind of the black side, we're talking about being in the cities, being in that space, um, being in a densely populated area and, and all that entails. And, um, you know, they're really different types. Um, you know, so of course, there are basic principles that remain the same, but the, the challenges are, are, 
are pretty different. Um, one thing that kind of right off the bat always was sort of, you know, beaten into your head as, as a new guy. And, and as you went along was, um, the threat in an urban environment is not only just 360 degrees around you, you know, it's also, uh, 360 degrees, you know, above and below you. So, you know, you're constantly thinking about attacks from rooftops, from sewers, from windows, from, you know, high rises, you know, all these structures that you don't have to deal with, uh, as much on the green side where you're, you're out in the woods. Um, people are unlikely to climb a tree to shoot at you. I mean, I suppose it can happen, but it's not a very good tactic. Whereas in an urban environment, you know, shooting from a top floor down on your enemy is, um, a tried and true technique. It appears that the initial Russian strategy out at the outset was a sprint, uh, to Kiev to decapitate the government, uh, their expectations were way off the mark in terms of the resistance uh, they would face. And and now it appears that the offensive is, is bogged down. Is that your reading as well, that they did not expect uh, what met them uh, and that they are having to totally reassess their approach um, in in trying to take Kiev. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. I mean, you know, it's again, I, I'm not sure what's happening in the in the south of the country, but certainly in the northern part and in, in Kiev and uh, some of the other cities up there, it seems like their uh, their pace of operations has slowed and, and met pretty stiff resistance. Um, once you get into that city environment, uh, you know, again. Uh, the, the, the two main factors are, uh, you know, enemies resistance and moving through that city, but also your own supply lines. Um, you know, cities just suck up resources. Um, you need a lot of people to clear a city and you have to clear a city. You know, you can walk past a house, you can walk past an apartment building and, and assume that uh, it's empty. And, you know, before you know it, you're taking fire from the rear. So you have to methodically go through these cities and clear every building. That takes time. It takes manpower. It takes ammunition. It takes breaching supplies. It takes radio batteries. It's not a fast process at all. And, uh, you know, the, the challenge, the scale of what you need to clear a city is is much greater than, um, you know, it's almost exponential compared to what you would need to, uh, you know, clear a mountainside. I think part of the evidence of that drastic reassessment is the use of heavy artillery now. Uh, that doesn't seem to have been planned for initially when the expectation was that they would roll, roll right in. In fact, Russian soldiers were being told they'd be welcomed with open arms, and now they are apparently indiscriminately shelling uh, cities. They're hitting civilian areas. They're they're bombing kindergartens. That has to be, from a tactician's perspective, some kind of admission of failure, right? Yeah, I I would think so um, to an extent. The uh, you know Russian, you know the, the very little I know about Russian military doctrine, um, you know they've they've historically uh, depended on massed fires. You know they have um, a lot of artillery. That's always kind of been their uh, you know their strength is firepower, and so. And the fact that sort of, you know, to your point about this decapitation strike in the beginning of the war uh, was unsuccessful. And, and you know, from, again, from some of the open source reporting, it sounds like they had, 
uh, either dropped soft forces, uh, Spetsnaz forces into the city or, or nearby the city um, to, to attempt that decapitation strike and, and they failed. Um, you know, they seem to be going to plan B or, or even C at this point, which would be to, you know, kind of reduce the cities through uh, indirect fire. Um, that is uh, not a great plan. Um, you know, as if you've ever seen even, a, you know, a movie like Stalingrad, um, sometimes the, the, the rubble uh, can be an even better place to fight from. Um, but, you know, that's not the intent, right? The, the intent is not, <coughs> excuse me not necessarily to reduce the city uh, and destroy defenders. I mean, that's, that's kind of a bonus, but you know, the, the attempt is to terrorize the, the civilian population. One difference between uh, Kiev and, and my battlefield experiences um, when, when we went into Fallujah in 2004, November, 2004, which was my main urban warfare experience. Um, the, the, uh, uh, the city was largely evacuated by that point. Uh, you know, it had been surrounded for months and, um, you know, they were told by f- folks were told to, to leave. I mean, there were some civilians there, of course. Um, but you know, the, the, the numbers had dwindled quite a bit and I do not know, um, how many civilians are left in Kiev, but an attack, um, you know, indiscriminate, indiscriminate shelling of a city or even shelling of, um, you know, artillery can be fairly accurate, but it's not a JDAM, right? It's not GPS guided. Um, it's it's a it's an area weapon essentially, and so that's um, that's bound to hit civilians, and and that's probably part of the intent to to try to terrorize the local population. Well, Kiev and Kharkiv are certainly still packed with civilians. Can you talk a little bit? I know it's not right in your sweet spot. Um, but you know, you know more about it than, than most of our listeners. What a cluster munition is, what it does, what a thermobaric weapon is, what it does, and how they are, for all intents and purposes, at least how they're being deployed now, terror weapons. Yeah, so cluster munitions are you know sort of outlawed um, internationally. I mean, they're um, um, you know, we, we think in terms of like anti-personnel versus anti, uh, you know, equipment weapons. Um, for an example, is like a 50 caliber machine gun is, you know, um, according to the laws of war, you know, you're, you're not really supposed to use that on an individual. It's, it's, a, it's an equipment weapon. Um, but, you know, when we start doing using cluster munitions, um, very, very much, you know, indiscriminate. Right. So, um, you know, this is an area weapon. Um, you know, the, the ideal situation to use something like that would be with, uh, you know, a mass of troops in, in the open, right? Um, you know, troops in the open fire for effect, okay? Uh, a thermobaric device, um, most of the munitions that um, are used are designed to, to kill and maim people and injure people um, a little bit with the blast, but, but more so with shrapnel. And so a thermobaric device creates like an overpressure wave um, and it, it can be used with pretty devastating effect <clears throat> inside of a closed structure. So in a place like a city, you know, where you have these things going off inside of a house or inside uh, or even, you know, in a narrow alleyway, let's say, um, it's going to magnify those effects. So instead of, <clears throat> you know, a shrapnel, a piece of shrapnel, um, you know, hitting a person, um, you know, you're dealing with this massive wave of pressure, which can, um, 
you know, drop a lung or, you know, just, uh, you know, kill someone from the blast itself, as opposed to, um, a, a missile that is, um, you know, picked up because of the blast or, or a piece of shrapnel. Again, totally indiscriminate when used in this way. I mean, if it's a, a, a trench attack miles from a city that might not violate uh, Geneva Convention rules, but when a thermobaric weapon is used in a city, when a cluster munition is used in a city, uh, safe to say that it's being used to terrorize the civilian population. I'd agree with that, Ken. And, you know, it's not... A thermobaric weapon is, um, you know, it, it's, for example, you know, pick, a, you know, think of an apartment building, right? Like, a, you know, an apartment building in, um, you know, a big city, Philadelphia or Chicago or whatever. And, you know, when you have this blast overpressure that's made even worse um, by the confined space, you're indiscriminately, you know, killing everybody in that space, right? So there's no ability to... Um, you know, selectively target people with a with a weapon like that. That's um, you know not you know you might get some Ukrainian military personnel if you're the Russian firing it, but you're also bound to kill anyone who's in that room or, or in that structure as well. And the other thing too is they they just have a tendency to collapse structures. So um, you know a, a thermobaric uh, even a thermobaric hand grenade uh, which exists um, it'll drop a a, a structure. So we're in a situation now where that um, that lightning strike failed, that decapitation attempt against the Ukrainian government failed. They are now um, terrorizing to soften up these urban targets with the the expectation that Russian tanks are going to start rolling in uh, and going house to house. And that has been your on-the-ground experience, albeit not from a tank. Um, what are those Russian soldiers likely to face when they try that again? Yeah, so cities are tough, right? Because, you know, like I said, you've got that 360-degree threat, but you also have to be thinking about what's above you and what's below you. Um, you know, and uh, I don't want to give, you know, there's uh, there's debate um, as to whether tanks are useful in, in urban combat. I can tell you that in, in my experience, tanks are very useful in urban combat. Um, they have to be complemented by, you know, infantry and close support. Um, but having the ability to, uh, you know, if you, if one were to try to, uh, you know, hit a house, um, with a squad of soldiers and, uh, you know, it was barricaded inside, um, having the ability to walk out of that house and, uh, you know, talk to your tank that's a block away and have them come over and, and, you know, fire a, a, a round into that house is, is pretty useful. Artillery, we're, we're, which we're talking about is, is, it's not a great weapon for a city um, because you can't you can't selectively strike with it. I mean, the ideal in in American combat doctrine. I mean, you, you want to use air power. You want to use selective precision munitions. You know, a JDAM or something like that. Um, or you know, in modern times, even even some of our drones, where you can you can really get accurate with that. Well. One of the problems with urban combat, you know, especially for these these Russian forces, they don't have air. You know, it's not just air superiority, Ken. It's it's air supremacy. They have to be able to own the sky over these cities to safely uh, support their troops on the ground. So, you know, these Russians, um, you know, these Russian foot soldiers, uh, you know, patrolling into these cities. Um, 
they, their, their best bet for getting supportive fires is probably to have tanks with them. Now, double-edged sword, right? Because those tanks are pretty big weapons, or pretty big weapons, but also pretty big targets. And um, a lot of the, uh, a lot of the weapons have been, uh, you know, moved into Ukraine from, from allied countries, including our own, uh, or, or anti-tank weapons. Um, the other thing about urban combat is it's on the individual combatant, it's exhausting, right? It's, you know, to clear a high rise building. I mean, you know, you're not taking the elevator, right? Like you're, you're going, you know, if you've got a 10 story building, that's, you know, um, you know, 10 flights of stairs that you're probably going up and down multiple times. And then you're clearing all the rooms on each level. I mean, it's physically exhausting. It takes a long time, not to mention how terrifying it can be and, and how dangerous it is. So it's really, it's, they, they have a, a tall, a tall order in front of them. Can you talk a little more about that fear and, and don't worry about making it graphic because I worry sometimes that Americans watching this, uh, um, some still see it through the lens of a video game. Uh, I mean, recently it was revealed that some of the footage coming out was actually borrowed from video games. It's just so ironic that that's how we choose to um, to to see conflicts like this. Uh, and and it's not a video game. And I want you to talk yeah. both about your experience as a SEAL, but also what you see in, emer- in an emergency room. I mean, this is not the, the toll that this takes is, sure. is horrific. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, there's, when I was, uh, you know, 24 years old, uh, clearing rooms in Fallujah, um, you know, it was psychologically, exhausting on, on everybody in the unit. Um, you know, you, you go into a house and, um, you know, the way all military units are, are trained to do is to, is to kind of flow off one another. Cause you don't know, I mean, you know, with certain exceptions and special mission units where they have a floor, a floor plan before they hit a house. Um, you know, you don't know what you're getting into. You go into a house, it's a house you've never seen before. You don't know what it looks like inside. So, you know, the, the number one man, uh, when you make entry into that structure, um, you know, maybe there's, you know, a door, maybe there's somebody, you know, there, a threat that needs to be addressed. Um, and as you move through a house with a, with a unit of, of soldiers, um, you know, everyone's going to have their time at the front of that stack, right? Like, so, you know, because there's no way for, you know, one guy to be the point man, not that you'd want that anyway, but there's no way for one guy to be the point man on every room, right? So everyone's going to have that time where they're the number one person in the stack and you've cleared as much as you can from kind of pieing off the door from that side in the hall. And then you have to, you have to make entry. And, you know, it's, it's comforting to know that your buddies are right behind you, but you're the, you're the first guy to, to pop your face through that door. And, you know, that's, that's how people, that's how people die, right? Like that's, it it has to be done in this context, but everyone knows that that number one guy through the door is, if there is a bad guy in that room, they're, they're likely to get shot. So just the psychological stress of that and doing it over and over and, you know, you do it in a three bedroom house, right? And then you do it in an apartment building with, uh, you know, a hundred rooms and, or a hundred apartments. And each of those apartments have multiple rooms. You don't know, 
which one's going to have, um, you know, an AK 47, uh, round waiting for you. Um, add to that, you know, you've got the, the issue of people, uh, shooting at you, you know, in, inside a house. Um, you've also got the issue of, you know, booby traps and the like, right. IEDs, these things, um, you know, the, the Chechens in, in the first Chechen conflicts in the, in the nineties were, you know, one of their TTPs was just to, um, you know, kind of lure Russian troops into a, into a house and then, and then pancake it. Right. So, you know, there were multiple houses in Fallujah that, uh, you know, we went into that had IEDs inside. Um, you know, they, they, that's a, that's a common tactic is to, is to booby trap uh, a house and, and just, you know, you, you shoot a couple, you pop off a couple of shots from the top window and you get a squad to, to run up to the door and you go out the back door to a different house and you wait for that squad to make entry. And then you, you know, you clack off and, and blow up the house, right? Like that's, that's been done for forever. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's incredibly just exhausting to, to engage in this kind of combat. How does the presence of civilians, of, of women and children in that environment add to that, uh, to that mental toll and, and that overall stress? Sure. I mean, you know, I, well, I think, you know, the short answer is it adds to it, right? I mean, you know, having the, having the added burden of trying to, um, you know, if you, if you knew, you know, beyond the shadow of a doubt, every single person in, in a city was hostile. Um, yeah, it would be, you know, psychologically easier, right? If you see movement, you can shoot at it. Right. But, you know, you can't, you can't do that in a, in a situation like, you know, in any real world situation, because there, you never know that for sure that everyone on a target is hostile. Um, you know, the, the, uh, trying to, um, you know, navigate that situation, not only is going to, you know, potentially give you that split second pause, um, you know, where you're trying to try to ensure proper target ID and, you know, maybe that's enough for uh, something bad to happen. So it's, it just adds to that, not to mention, you know, when inevitably some civilians are killed, unfortunately, that, you know, that, that is psychologically devastating as well. Right. Like, you know, their war is a terrible thing and it's, and, and bad stuff happens during wartime and that bad stuff is not always intentional and, you know, it accidentally, um, you know, injuring a non-combatant is, you know, there's, there's, you'd have to be a true psychopath, not for that to, to, uh, to affect you. And not that there's not true psychopaths in the world, but you know, the, the majority of people in, in uniform are, um, you know, doing it because they're, they're trying to support and, and serve their country. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. Hello. 
Hello. We have this superb podcast called We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by Billy Joel. It is the most original, fascinating, and random way to learn the story of the 20th century. Oh, pretty darned random. And we are joined by some pretty incredible guests. I only wrote stuff that I wanted to hear. If it turned out to be a hit, it was pure dumb luck. With me, Katie Puckrick. And me, Tom Fordyce. This is We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. There, there are videos coming out of Ukraine uh, still of crowds of unarmed, incredibly brave Ukrainians literally stopping tanks with their bodies, piling up on the roads so that the Russians can't get past them. I would imagine the days of uh, Russian commanders tolerating that are, are numbered, uh, and it, it won't be long before... Um, before that, even among the average Russian soldier, the, the patience is gone, and and they're being told to um, to keep driving. Um, mm-hmm. I I have to believe that at some point in Fallujah um, or in other operations you were on, your default switched to seeing uh, civilians as threats. Do you see that happening soon? Yeah, and if it isn't already, I mean, you know. I, you know, this individual is, shall remain anonymous. He was not a SEAL. He was from another unit. But um, I've heard a, a high-ranking officer say to um, uh, to allied snipers, um, you know, those men are, uh, those men are not, you know, there was some unarmed men uh, walking through the city. And the, the line I'll never forget was, um, an American officer saying, you know, they are not surrendering, they're maneuvering, um, and I want you to engage them. And, you know, these, it wasn't, it wasn't, I was in the room and, and these snipers were not SEAL snipers and they refused to engage them. And that was the right decision um, by the laws of war. But, you know, it, it's, I'm not sure that the, the Russians are, you know, always going to, going to abide by that. And, you know, it's, maybe those guys were maneuvering, right? Like, so, you know, these two guys were walking left to right across the street and they, they were unarmed. They were not, you know, legitimate targets, but you know, maybe they were insurgents and it was a common insurgent tactic to, you know, leave weapons at one house and wave a white flag and walk to a different house and pick up some more weapons and, and, you know, take back to the windows. So, um, I I think it's, if that hasn't already happened, it's, it's inevitable that that will be happening soon. Do you have any insights on the the Russian attitude toward war? And, and I'm not asking you to to talk geopolitically, but as a SEAL, you studied Spetsnaz. You studied your, you know, your main adversary. Should the balloon ever go up? Um, how is that training uh, done? What is that capability? What is the mindset of your uh, your your Spetsnaz operator, and does it differ materially from how we go to war? You know, when I was in Buds, Ken, there was a um, an so I think it was SAS or SBS guy who like came through and was kind of doing a tour of Buds with the commander. And I remember the the captain who was in charge of the Naval Special Warfare Center at the time said, you know, one of the things you'll realize um, is that you know you have a lot in common with your your uh, your soft counterparts, no matter where they are. 
Um, I don't have any special insight into to Spetsnaz training. Um, I'd imagine they're not that dissimilar psychologically to, you know, special operators in, in any country, um, you know, which the people who are attracted to that type of work are, you know, generally kind of cut from the same cloth. Um, you know, I think, you know, I think in this situation, um, it's, it's an unfortunate, it's unfortunate that, you know, this, this has happened. I mean, it's, it's terrible. This is the, the, you know, a huge land war in Europe, um, with the potential to, to become a global conflagration. And, um, you know, they, they've got, you know, ultimately it's 19 and 20 and 25 and 30 year old young men and women who are, you know, they're trying to do their jobs and, you know, as their political leadership, uh, you know, set them out to do. And so, um, I don't harbor any specific, uh, you know, resentment towards the Russians, um, you know, aside from their leadership, but, you know, I, I think, um, you know, all that being said, I, I hope the Ukrainians are, are quite successful at defending themselves and, um, you know, inflicting casualties on the Russians. Talk about that Russian conscript, that 20-year-old um, non-volunteer, uh, and, and I'm distinguishing that kid sure. from the soft, uh, the Spetsnaz guy, um, because the bulk of the Russian army uh, it, it appears had no idea what they were being sent to do. What is the role of morale? What is the role of morale in a, an invasion like this? Sure. I mean, I, this is speculative, of course, but you know, um, I can tell you, you know, a couple things. I mean, when I went through the Navsoft pipeline back in the day, you know, it was buds is like six months or so, and then there's you know maybe another six to eight months of training and then you go to a team and then you do a workup with your platoon and that's, you know, a year and a half or two years. And then finally you deploy and you're kind of three or four years into your naval career. And then, you know, at the same time, you're, um, you're still a new guy, right. And you still don't know what you're doing. Um, so, you know, if you were to take a, a conscript on a one-year contract, um, you know, Let's say, I don't know how long Russian boot camp is, but let's say 12 weeks, give or take, you know, and then maybe they gave it their unit and, um, you know, throw in some leave time. And then, you know, maybe they do a little bit of training and that sort of thing. Um, that's a, that's a, there's not a lot of time to get trained up for, you know, something like this that their government's asking them to do. Um, I can't imagine that, uh, you know, once faced with the reality of the situation, you know, pitched urban combat that there are too many, you know, Russian conscripts who are nine months into a one year conscription that are, that are really excited about that. I want to pivot to the, the resistance. Um, they of course are at a massive disadvantage in terms of firepower and resources, but they have, uh, they have an edge in, in some areas. Can you talk about, the advantages that defending in an urban landscape um, uh, brings to to the defenders. Oh, I mean, al almost all the advantages are to the defender. Um, you know, the you know, you're you get to choose. You know, what points you're going to defend. I mean, there's this concept of a very basic concept called you know defense in depth, right? So you you know you don't just sit up in one house and, and this is the Alamo and, you know, we're going to stay here until, um, you know, we win or we die. 
you know, there's, there's, uh, um, you know, you, you set up in one house, you know, you, you take your shots and when things get, you know, hot, you scoot out the back door to the next house that's already prepared. Um, and that has, you know, is already fitted with, with resupply. Um, the, the advantage of being able to choose when you're going to initiate contact, uh, is immense, right? Like, you know, in, in an urban environment, the, the kill zones are the streets. Um, you know, so you, you know, it's a, a classic tactic is to try to stay off the streets as much as possible. And if you can, you know, you, you make a hole from one house into the next house and, you know, you stay in the yards because um, it's the streets, you know, being on the streets, those center thoroughfares where are you're wide open and you don't have any cover. Inevitably, you're going to have to walk up a street at some point. And, and that's when the defenders get to choose, um, you know, when when the time is right to 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 spring on that ambush. So. Really, I mean, for all intents and purposes, all of the advantages are, are to the defense. Um, the only thing that I can really think of is, you know, if you threaten the defender's supply lines and it turns into kind of like a siege-like state and they don't have the ability to evacuate casualties and, and to resupply, um, you know, that's that's kind of an advantage for the, for the, uh, the force walking through the city. But, you know, by and large, you know, I'd say 90% of the, the advantages rest with the defenders in this, in this situation. Do you have any prediction as to how the coming uh, week or two will unfold? Uh, my prediction is that I will be wrong in whatever prediction I make. But uh, if I had to make a prediction, I've, you know, I think the Russians have one of two options. Well, three, really. They can withdraw. Seems unlikely. They can turn it into a siege and just try to starve the government into submission. Then you're battling the clock, right? And then at what point does you know Poland start flying C-130s overhead and, and dropping pallets of gear? Um, or, or you can, you can go through and try to clear the city. Um, I, you know, I've never read the cycle the CIA psychological profile of, of Vladimir Putin, but you know, my, my prediction is he's going to, he's going to assault the cities. Um, you know, the other two don't seem like things that he is, is prepared to do one because it takes too much time and one because it's sort of admitting failure. So, um, I hope I'm wrong. Um, I have, a, I have a history of making many wrong predictions in the past, Ken. So, um, you know, I hope I'm wrong on this one too, but I, I, I think there's a, a pretty high probability that there's going to be some pretty bloody weeks ahead. Me too. Yeah. Do you have thoughts? I'm sure you do. <laughs> what are your thoughts on our countrymen, Americans who have, have sympathized with Putin? You have you have an incredibly influential news personality on the right, I'll call him out, Tucker Carlson, saying, mm-hmm. uh, why should I root for Russia, which I am, um, uh, saying, why is it disloyal to side with, Ru- with Russia? I think we should probably take the side of Russia, all direct quotes. We have the former president praising sure. Putin as a genius. And I'm always careful here, so I'm going to quote directly. He said he's going to go in and be a peacekeeper, calling those troops peacekeepers. We have a Senate candidate in Delaware saying, I identify more with Putin's Christian values than I do with Joe Biden. Mm -hmm. What does language like that do in terms of of propaganda? How how can that be redeployed by, um, by our enemies? Sure. So, I mean, you know, there's a lot to unpack there, but the most charitable explanation Right. Is that 
Tucker Carlson and Donald Trump didn't think Putin was actually going to do this. Right. That's, you know, if I'm if I'm, you know, and I'm not one to be uh, I'm not one to be uh, super charitable to, to Donald Trump and Tucker Carlson. But in the in the fairness, you know, in, in fairness, it's entirely possible that Tucker Carlson had a, had an oh shit moment where he was like, oh, my God, he's really doing this. Um, right. So that's that's, you know, one um, more likely, I think, far more likely is that, you know, he does sympathize with the Russians and, you know, kind of use this as sort of a continuation of, you know, kind of a real politic. Um, you know, it's it's it gets to what what we view America as, um, you know, is America a a country with, uh, you know, no permanent friends, only permanent interests um, that just, you know, occupies the middle third of North America and uh, is a country like like any others, or, or does it have a special purpose and a, a, a higher calling? I would argue that it's the second. And, you know, the the Ukrainians are, are a classic, right? It's a, it's a classic, like, American love story, right? It's, it's it, they're underdogs, right? So you've got these underdogs, against, you know, what for a hundred years has kind of been a traditional enemy of the United States, um, an unprovoked invasion. Um, you know, it's, it's in Europe, it's in the age of social media. Um, you know, we can, I I go to Twitter and I can see videos right from the battlefield, even, even in my war, that wasn't the case. Um, you know, so as far as, you know, what does it do to the American population? Um, probably nothing. Um, I think this, you know, the bigger issues, it's getting, it's getting, um, it's getting played back in Russia. Um, and so, you know, you've got, you've got Russian folks who are like, oh, look, you know, the Americans are split when, when in, in actuality, I think it, you know, overwhelmingly with, with a very, very small percentage of Americans, um, you know, would be on Putin's side in this. Um, you know, if you look at, uh, you know, some of the Republicans, they've, they've done a 180, they've just flipped, you know, immediately. Um, and, you know, I have mixed feelings on that, honestly, Ken, it's like, it's like, Hey, you guys weren't saying this a week ago, but well, you know, and then part of me is like, well, it's better late than never. Like, I, I don't really, um, you know, it's, it's hard for me to you know, kind of tease that out a little bit, but, but I do think, um, I do think clearly like, you know, America ought to be on the side of Ukraine and we ought to help the Ukrainians and punish Russia um, as much as, as humanly possible and, and without risking, you know, directly risking American lives. Well, that's what I want to finish with because yeah. if, if America indeed is a nation that considers more than just its own interests, if, if we are a nation with a special purpose, what can we do? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot that we can do. I mean, you know, keep your pressure on on your, you know, the representatives, right? Like, you know, you call, this is a time to call your senator, right? This is a time to write a letter. This is a time to write an editorial. This is a time to show our humanity by welcoming uh, Afghan refugees. This is a time to show our humanity by, um, you know, taking up a collection at your church for Ukrainian refugees who are, who are in Poland, um, you know, this is a time in which, uh, you know, you might feel like we're far and away and we're, we're quite disconnected, but even something as simple as, um, you know, sharing, uh, you know, a link on, on social media that, uh, you know, is, is, 
um, looking for to, to to get blankets to refugees in in Poland or Moldova or, or the like. You know, th- those are things that average people can do. Um, I think that the uh, I think that America does have a special purpose. I think we have um, an obligation. Um, I don't think we can withdraw from the world. Um, I think that we are, uh, you know, we are a nation that prides ourselves on helping, you know, time and time again, we've stepped in. Um, are we perfect? Of course not. Of course, of course, this country is not perfect, but you know, more so than, than just about any other country in history, we've, we've tried to do the right thing on, on numerous occasions. And, you know, whether it's in, um, a place like, uh, you know, the, the tsunami response, uh, you know, 2000, early 2000s or, or uh, you know, earthquakes or, you know, we, we show up when, when things go south and, and we try to help and look for those opportunities to help. Um, you know, our country is, is better served by people who want us to be involved in the international community and influence in events before events just happen to us. I couldn't agree more, Dan. Um, and a, a great note to to close on. Uh, my my kids actually tried to get Ukrainian flags. They're entirely sold out everywhere. Uh, we, nice. we live in Cleveland, so we're buying uh, yellow and blue cloth and going to make our own. You know, it is it is a World Cup year, so I, I don't have any, I don't even follow soccer, but I'm I'm hoping Ukraine has a good run. <laughs> Likewise, thanks for joining us, Dan. Appreciate your time. Thanks, guys. That was Dan Barkov. You can follow him on Twitter at dbarkov. Thanks for listening to Warriors in Their Own Words. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcast.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Warriors in Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Declan Roars. Bridget Coyne is our production director, and Sean Rolhoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors in Their Own Words. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecla, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts.